and grab your seats. It's good to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to that. And Carolyn will be reading our text this morning. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. God, you are high and lifted up. Yet at the very same time, God, you're exceedingly near. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us today, no matter what kind of day we've had so far, what kind of week, month, or year we've had. I pray, God, that you'd help us in this moment to experience both of those realities, to see you in your greatness and to know you in your closeness and in your care. God, would you open up our eyes and our hearts by the power of your spirit today and increase our faith in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think if we're honest, uh, a lot of us like to think that we can accomplish most anything that we set our minds to. We like to think we're pretty capable people. I mean, YouTube can tell us how to do anything, right? And in an area that thrives off of impressive CVs, resumes, and expertise, it's even more punctuated. A whole lot of people are very talented and very capable, but the reality is we all tend to overestimate our abilities and performance. Take, for instance, when software engineers at two companies were asked to rate their performance, 32% of the engineers at one company and 42% at the other put themselves in the top 5% of their company. If you're not a math or stats person, that isn't possible. And according to something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, the disparity between perceived performance and actual performance, get this, is greater the less competent a person is. In other words, the worse you actually are at a job or task, the better you think you are at said job or task. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one reason is that we tend to have a high view of ourselves. We like to believe that we are self-sufficient, that we are self-actualizers. And our world promotes this idea, but God's word corrects it. It gives us an accurate picture of ourselves, a picture of ourselves, not as compared to others, but in light of who God is. In church, it is wonderfully freeing and encouraging. Today, we come to the end of our sermon series, Faithful Church, that we've been in over the last couple of months, a, a series where we've been opening up God's word, seeking to see who God is calling us to be together as we've become one new church. And what we've seen throughout this series is that we have a high and holy calling as God's people, as the church. But there's a temptation that can be in that as well. We can hear all of these things that we've talked about over these last few weeks and think to ourselves, all right, let's do it. I got to get to work. We have to get to work. We can do this. I can do this. All we have to do is try harder and be better. But what we'll see in our text today is that our ability, our ability to be faithful isn't dependent on our capacity. Our ability to be faithful isn't dependent on our competency. 
Our ability to be faithful is dependent on the power, presence, and faithfulness of our God. What this means is, is if we are going to be a faithful church, if we are going to be a faithful church, we must have faith in our faithful God. So listen, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, if you're already following Jesus or maybe just checking out who he is, if you're a member of this church or maybe you find yourself on the fringes or you're just new here figuring out, is this the community that God wants you to be a part of? No matter where you are at, my hope for you today is that you'll not only be in awe of who our God is and what he can do, but that you'll also lead you to go all in with him and with us for his glory, for your good, and for the good of others. So let's dive into Ephesians chapter three this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. Obviously the text that we're looking at is short, just two verses as you heard just read. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk through those two verses and end our time looking at two implications that come from our text as we strive together to be a faithful church. But before we do that, I wanna give you a little context about why Paul writes these two lines, these two verses here in 20 and 21. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is expounding on and sharing the ridiculous nature of the gospel. He's explaining the good news of God's grace to us. That while we were dead in our sin, God being rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. He sent his son to rescue and redeem us from all of our sin and all of our shame by Jesus going to the cross for us. See, we're not reconciled to God. We're not redeemed by any good works on our part, but by grace through faith in the good and final work of Jesus. And then in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 and 19, he says this. If you have your Bible, look at these verses. They'll be on the screen as well. Verses 14 through 19, Paul writes, for this reason, thinking about everything that he said so far, he said, I bow my knees before the Father. He's talking about how he's praying. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. For what reason? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is giving us this wonderful picture of God's grace. He's giving this wonderful picture of who Jesus is. And he says, I'm praying for you to comprehend the incomprehensible. He wants you to know who you are in Christ. He wants you to understand the love of Christ, which he says is, surpasses the ability to actually understand. Paul is amped up at this point, which leads him to where our text is today. See, Paul is praying this in this way, and he wants us to be rooted in this response, I mean, in this reality. And so his natural response is, is to explode in worship. He, he's so fired up at all the riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus, he explodes in exaltation. And that's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 can be described as a doxology. Doxology is a fancy way of saying, giving praise to God. A doxology is a short hymn of praise. It literally means glory saying. It's ascribing glory to God for who he is and what he's done and what he is doing. And this doxology is full of rich, amazing truth. It's a hymn of praise, 
but it's instructive for the Ephesians and for us as well. See, Paul has not only explained and expounded on the richness of the gospel, he's also prayed some pretty bold things. Here, we see in Ephesians 3, if we go back to Ephesians 1, we see it as well. He's praying these really bold things for God's people. But you know what? In a world that is set against Jesus, it can be difficult to follow him. Life along the way can be confusing and disorienting at times. So it would have been tempting for the Ephesians, and maybe it's tempting for you this morning, to see what Paul says, to see what Paul prays, and think, hey, that sounds nice. It has some good, strong rhetorical effect, but it isn't very realistic. Like, Paul, aren't you overshooting this a little bit? Isn't this a little much to be praying for in the reality of a broken world and all the difficulty that surrounds us? I mean, what if God doesn't answer these prayers? What if he doesn't come through? Won't he look bad? Won't we look bad? I mean, what would actually happen if we prayed in the way that Paul prays? Has Paul asked too much of God? That's a good question for us just to consider for our own lives. Can you ask too much of God? Paul's answer, absolutely not. In fact, maybe the problem isn't that we're asking too much of God, but we ask too little. You think you're praying for seemingly crazy things? Is, well, crazy? No, Paul says, it's not crazy. Why? Because our God is able. He's able. Able is a crucial word in our text this morning, so let's not rush by it. It means having the power, the skills, the means or opportunity to do something. And this gets back to what I mentioned in the introduction. We like to think that we are able. That we are able. I know I do. I have a problem. I want to let you know about it. It's an omni problem. Omni is a prefix that means all. And how it plays out in my life, how I experience this in my life, is that I tend to overcommit to things. To think that I can actually, am capable to do whatever it is that needs to be done. I like the idea and even at times feel the pressure to be a know-it-all. I, I feel the pressure and like the idea of being an everywhere for all. You need me somewhere, I need to show up somewhere, I got it. I like the idea of being a fix-it-all. There's a problem, we can figure out the solution for it. I don't like having limitations. Can anybody else relate to that? But that's rooted in a wrong view of self. It's grounded in self instead of in Christ. Man, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for you as an individual. It's dangerous for your relationships. It's dangerous for us as a church because it's crushing to think that about yourself or about anybody else. It places impossible expectations on one another. Listen, you're gifted and so am I. Many of us are able to do a lot of things, but look at me, this might be the most freeing thing, the most encouraging thing you hear all day. You are not omni-gifted. You are not omnicompetent. You aren't able to do everything and neither am I. And you know what? That's okay. Because that is not how God created you. That's not your intention for this life. You aren't made to be those things. You aren't expected to be those things. Not by God and not by us as a church. Because there's only one who is. See, when Paul says God is able, what is it that he's able to do? Some things 
A few things like us? No, Paul says he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Far more abundantly is this idea of he's able to do infinitely more than, than all that we can ask or think. In other words, there's no limit to what God can do. One scholar said this in thinking about us asking God to do things. He says this, God's capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. That means it's impossible to ask God to do too much. You can't out-imagine what God is capable of. Now, this doesn't mean that he's going to answer and do everything that you ask of him. Many of us have had seemingly unanswered prayers in our lives for good things, big and small. Some of you have prayed for healing for yourself or for others, and the person hasn't been healed. You've prayed for help in life. It seems like there's just more difficulty. You long to be married and have prayed for a spouse, but that hasn't happened yet. You've longed to have children and that hasn't happened yet. You've longed for different things to happen in your life, seemingly good things, and you've prayed, but it doesn't seem like God is giving you the answer that you're longing for. And that can be really, really hard. It can leave us wondering why. Why, God, why aren't you doing these things? And the reality is we aren't always promised an answer to the question why, but we are promised a who. We are promised a who. See, our God, he isn't a genie in a bottle. Our God isn't a cosmic Santa Claus looking to hook you up. No, our God is a good father. He's a good father who wants to hear the heart of his children, request of his children, and is always at work for your good always at work for your good, even if you don't know exactly what he's up to. This is who our God is. And in him, we can have comfort and find peace. And in this doxology then, what Paul is calling us to is to have faith in him, in this God who is able. But this is where we need to be careful. Speaking of Santa Claus, have you guys seen the movie Elf? Came out almost 20 years ago. I know. That doesn't make you feel old. What's the crux of the issue on Christmas Eve with Santa's sleigh? It's in Central Park, and they can't get the sleigh to fly. In fact, it's been a problem for a long time now, because what makes Santa's sleigh fly is Christmas spirit, believing in Santa. The clausometer has to be high enough, and it's been so bad, they've had to install a jet turbine on Santa's sleigh. But the turbine has been broken. It's come off. And so the only way they're going to be able to get this sleigh out of Central Park is if enough people believe in Santa. In other words, catch this, Santa's ability to do anything, to go anywhere is contingent on the belief of people. Is that what we're talking about here? Thank you. (laughs) If we believe enough in God, then God is able. Is that the kind of faith Paul is calling us to? No, not at all. Faith isn't believing in God, it's believing God. It's taking him at his word. Listen, God is able not because of the proportion of your faith. God is able because of who he is. The theologians and scholars throughout time have sought to help us understand who God is, to comprehend the incomprehensible. And so they've given us characteristics and attributes that we get from God's word, and there's a ton of them. I want to highlight six of them for you this morning. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. 
There's nothing that exists in our world that God doesn't have knowledge of. He's not learning as you're learning. There's nothing surprising to him. He has exhaustive knowledge of all things. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is the true fix-it-all. He's the one who's able to do anything and everything according to his perfect will. God is omnipresent. He is an everywhere for all. He's able to be in all places. There's nowhere that you can run away and escape God's presence. There's nowhere where God would say, I don't know where they've gone. I've lost them. He knows where you are. He knows the details of your life. God is self-sufficient. There is no dependency on God for anyone or anything. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. God is faithful. He's faithful to do what he says he will do and be who he says that he is. And God is immutable. Maybe one of the most important attributes of God, he is without change. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is amazing news because what this means is God isn't going to decide tomorrow to relate to you differently than he did yesterday. He's not going to change or be fickle in his emotions or feelings towards you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow due to change in our God. Friends, he is able to do far more than we ask, far more than we think. Not because we have great faith, but because we serve a great God. Now to an unbelieving world... Our faith in God may at times appear, appear ridiculous, but that's only because they don't yet believe and don't yet know who our God is. But friends, we do. God has revealed himself to us in his word. We can flip through the pages of scripture and see over and over again who our God is. God has revealed his power in our world and in creation. He has declared to us and shown us over and over again that he can be trusted. He has shown us that he is always faithful to his plans and his purposes and his people. You can have faith because we have an amazingly faithful God. Second Corinthians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And we're actually getting ready to jump back into it next week, finishing out the book of second Corinthians. But at the very beginning in chapter one, Paul writes a profound truth and encouragement for us. Second Corinthians chapter one Verse 20, Paul writes this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, if we're wondering if God is faithful, if we're wondering if God is able, we don't have to look any further than the cross of Christ in his empty tomb. To see a, God's, to see a display of God's amazing faithfulness. God said he would rescue us. When sin entered into the world, back in Genesis chapter 3, he said he would send a redeemer to restore us, that he would be our God and we would be his people. He said he would free us through this redeemer from our slavery to sin and death. And in Christ, he has done all of that. So when Paul says to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think, it isn't hyperbolic language. He's not exaggerating for the sake of of the effect of his writing. This isn't wishful thinking. It's a call to have faith in the unchanging character and nature of our unchanging and faithful God. That means that your confidence in this life isn't meant to be in yourself. It's meant to be in God and his faithfulness seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. All of his promises find their yes and amen in Christ. So let me ask you, is your faith in Jesus and what he's done or is it still in yourself? 
Are you trying to be your own savior? Are you trying to be an everywhere for all, a fix it all, a know it all? Have you trusted in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for you? Paying for your sin and all of your self-sufficiency. If you haven't, there's no better time than right now in this moment to ask God to save you from your sin, to save you from yourself and to make you new. Now, for those of you that are already following Jesus, I encourage you to consider that question for yourself. Maybe you've already placed your faith in Christ, but you've been straying away seeking to say, I have a savior and it's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of me. If that's where you're at right now, this morning, repent and place your faith in Christ afresh today. But it also leads us to ask another question. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of this church, what does all this have to do with us being a faithful church? We've been in this series now for the last two months talking about being a faithful church. What does this text have to do with that? Well, this is where we can't miss what Paul says about our God who is able. Look at verse 20 again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. According to the power at work where? In the world? In the universe? In other people? No, in us, in the church. See, as the gospel comes to bear in your life, you are remastered in Christ. To follow him as king, to follow him as Lord, you're given a new identity and a new purpose in Christ. But God doesn't just save you as an individual. He saves you into a community, into a family, into the church. And it's within the church that Christ is most magnified as we come together to make much of him. He receives more glory through us together than he can from us just as a bunch of disconnected individuals. His power is made perfect in us as we come together, and that's where God is at work. See, what Paul is saying is not just ask God to do big things for the sake of doing big things. No, he's the sovereign king of all things for all times. And the power that called all things into creation, where God called everything into creation by the word of his mouth and out of nothing created everything, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, get this, is now at work within you, within us the church, so that we can be and do all that he's called us to. This gets back to his prayer in verses 14 through 19. He is praying and wants you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants you to be rooted and grounded in love. In other words, he wants you to be who you are and remember whose you are to be who you are in Christ and remember that you belong to him because it's then and only then that you can go and do what he's called you to do. Church, we have to be before we can do. Our new gospel identity leads to living out these gospel implications. How will we have faithful unity? How will we have faithful gatherings? How will we be faithful servants? How will we function as faithful members? How can we be on faithful mission in a world full of distractions with an enemy that only seeks to divide and devour? How can we actually be a faithful church? Because we have a faithful God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think and imagine according to his power at work within us. His power to raise dead men and women to life in Christ. His power to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. His power to advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth through you and me. 
us together. So what are we to do with this? I want to give us two implications in light of our new identity and in light of this text. The first is, let's pray for God's power and presence. Let's pray and plead for God's power and presence in our life as individuals and our life together as a church. Here's why. Too often, too often we do life and ministry in a way that doesn't actually require God's power or presence. We scheme and plan in a way that's dependent on our ability, not God's. We are too self-reliant. Even as gospel-believing people, I know that I can be that way. I can sit down to work on a sermon. I can go into a meeting, elder meeting, or a meeting with a member, or talking through different things, and not really acknowledge the fact that, God, I need you to show up. I need you to be present in this. Too often I think, I got this. I can do this. But you know what? Paul's doxology isn't now to you who are able. It's now to him who is able. And when we remember the greatness of the gospel, when we remember its reality in our own lives, that we were once dead in our sin, now made alive in Christ, we are compelled then to pray like this. So let's begin by praying to be amazed by grace again and again. If the light of Christ has grown dim in you, then let's pray for it to become a roaring fire again. Because it's then that we'll be compelled to persistently pray for this God to work for our God to work. We'll be compelled to pray with seemingly absurd faith to the same God of amazing, redeeming, resurrecting grace to do far more abundantly than we can even think because we know and believe that he is able. Here's a little side note when we pray this way. You don't need to caveat your prayers. I know oftentimes we pray and we say, God, I want you to do this thing, but only if you really want to. And only if it's your will, and maybe it isn't your will, so that's okay if it's not. But I want to kind of pray for this if that's okay. Man, church, we don't need to do that. You don't need to filter your prayers for God. Just pray. Pray, God, I, I, I want you to do this. I'm pleading for you to do this. Trust God's will up to God. Let him decide what he's going to do with that. But just pray. You don't need to be God's PR firm. In case he doesn't answer in the way that you want him to. Let's pray with boldness, pray for his power and presence. And when we pray this way, when we ask him to do more than we can think, within that then, there's an element of confession. You don't have to be a know-it-all or an everywhere-for-all or a fix-it-all. Instead, in these moments, you can admit that apart from God, you aren't able. You can confess that your tendency is towards self-reliance. You can acknowledge that you aren't self-sufficient or independent but utterly dependent on him. And that is a cleansing and freeing thing. It is cleansing and freeing to know that you are not God. Sometimes when we pray like this though, we can struggle with unbelief. And so coupled with a prayer for God's power and presence, we can also pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe you're all-knowing. I believe you're all-powerful. I believe you're ever-present. God, I believe you're eternal. I believe you're self-sufficient and faithful and unchanging. I believe you can do more than I can ask or think, but I'm having a hard time believing. That's honest. You know what? When you pray that way, God doesn't push you away in those moments. He draws you near by grace. Because see, friends, even when you are faithless, God is faithful. He is faithful. 
As we pray for God's power and presence, let us also, our second implication, then scheme for the kingdom together. If we know and believe that our God is able to do more than we can imagine, let's brainstorm and dream then. Let's confidently hope for transformed lives, ours and others. Are you struggling with sin or apathy right now? There's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you in Christ. If you are in Jesus, there's now no condemnation for you. Let's pray that we would believe that to be true and live like that's the reality. Let's pray for the gospel to be at work within our lives, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Let's confidently pray and hope to be disciples who make disciples, people who know, love, and obey Jesus and encourage others to do the same. Let's pray for more stories of grace in our midst and let's share those stories with one another. Let's confidently hope and pray that our culture of our church will be one of overflowing evangelism and frequent conversion, that we see real revival take place here in this area, that those who are far away from God right now would come to him, that those who think they know Christ but don't actually know him would actually be born again, that those who have been kind of sleepy Christians would be woken up in a fresh faith and fire for Christ and for God, Let's pray for that person, your neighbor, your coworker that's coming to mind right now that you think there's no way, there's no way they would ever come to know Jesus. Our God is able. Our God is able. Pray in faith that God would raise them to new life. Let's pray and confidently hope that our church will be truly multi-ethnic, that we would reflect the community we find ourselves in. That we'd have people that worship together from different tribes, languages, and nations coming together to lift our voices in praise to our God and King. Let's confidently hope and pray that we'd be faithful to go on mission as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That we would see churches planted in places and among people who don't yet have a church that's preaching the gospel. Let's confidently hope and pray that we'd be connected every single person in transformational community. That every person could honestly say, I know one or two people that know me and love me intimately and I know and love them intimately and we're helping each other know and follow Christ intimately. Let's pray and confidently hope that we would be a merciful community to our community. That it wouldn't just be that we show mercy to one another, but that their surrounding area would know the love of Christ for how we love them. Serving them, blessing them in the name of Jesus. Let's confidently hope and pray that we'd be marked by radical generosity that we would be more often opening our hands saying, God, take all of it, do whatever you want with whatever you've given me instead of holding on. Let's confidently hope and pray that our church will be marked by prolific servanthood, meaning that there's so many people that want to serve and use their gifts that God's given them that we'd be wondering, I don't know where to have you serve because there's no needs anymore. Let's pray and plan and work in such a way that when the things that we come up with are only possible if God shows up, if God is at work. And what's the result of all this? Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To give glory to God is not to add something to him, but to acknowledge who he is. And Paul says it's in the church and in Christ through all generations that God will get glory. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But what we see in this text is that his glory is more fully realized in and through his church. Through redeemed and reconciled men and women. As we ask him to work in us so that he might work through us. Asking that he would do more than we can even imagine him doing. 
God says to us even now, I can do more in this church. I can do more through this church than you can think. Think of something. Right now, think of something. God says, I can do more than that. Think of something else. God says, I can do more than that. So let me ask you, do you believe that to be true? This is where we can help one another. We can foster and fuel faith in our faithful God by reminding one another, especially in moments of fear, in moments of doubt, who our God is. He is the one who is in the heaven, all that he pleases. Listen, brothers and sisters, we aren't called to be impressive. We're called to be faithful. We aren't called to be impressive, but to point to our God who is impressive. More of him, less of us. Church, what might God do in us and through us in the next year, the next five years, in the next 10 years? Whatever it is, it'll be more than we can ask or think and all for his glory. May we be a faithful church who schemes for the kingdom and prays for God's power and presence. May we be a faithful church who is full of faith in our faithful God. Paul ends this doxology with an amen. Amen is the response of the congregation to these truths. It's a declaration of yes, this is true. Yes, I believe. Yes, this is our God. So Redeeming Grace Church, together, let us say amen.